I'm Julianne DeLynn Hatton, and you're listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. This series will discuss the Prophet Joseph Smith and the authenticity of the gospel he restored. I'll be speaking with Michael R. Ash, author of the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Welcome, Michael Ash. Hi, Julianne. This should be a Halloween episode, right? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a creepy one. <laughs> I like the word you use, disarming Ammon. <laughs> yeah, it's an uh, um, it, interesting topic. I, I, I guess as a, as a boy growing up and loving zombies and stuff like that, and my grandson's kind of the same way, I, I find this one very uh, fascinating. So let's begin by paraphrasing what happens in Alma 17. Ammon is assigned to protect King Lamani's flocks. And it's interesting, as a side note, that uh, when we look at artwork of this, many times we see Ammon protecting sheep. Um, but that's not what the, the scriptures say. It, it says for his flocks. And so it kind of leaves it up to the imagination of what that might have been. Uh, and, and we tend to impose our own thoughts many times on the scriptures. So that's a, just an interesting side note. But basically, uh, Ammon is protecting the, the flocks, and some uh, bad guys, some robbers come in and to, you know, try, to, try to take some of the, uh, the animals from this flock, and they get into a fight. And Ammon ends up cutting off the arms of of the uh, attackers, and and most likely in this day these people would have either been dead first or died obviously as he cut the arm off. I mean this, this even in Joseph Smith's day was difficult for uh, people to live when you lost a limb. You know we we talked about that when he had his leg operation, uh, but basically he cut off these arms and then these arms. Uh, were brought basically to the king, and and uh, that they were shown to see see what Ammon had done. Like I said, it's kind of a gruesome story, and it's neat, I guess, from a like I said, a perspective of just kind of a a, a creepy uh, war story. But we find that in the ancient Near East customs, that this was actually a, a not a uncommon thing. Today, when we hear in the news about ISIS and stuff like that, we you know they cut off the heads of people. Right. But it wasn't, yeah, it, you know, and, that, and that's kind of how I usually envision. You think, okay, bad guys are going to cut off the heads. You know, you got the guillotine in in France, and they, and of course, uh, you know, beheading Laban even in the Book of Mormon. And so, cutting off the arms sounds a little bit uh, less common. But in the ancient Near East, there was a custom to cut off body parts. Sometimes it was arms or hands or feet or whatever, and then they were brought to the general or to the leader as vouchers for rewards or, or sometimes even mercenary pay. And within the last, I, I believe, about 30 years or so, uh, Aztec artwork has been noticed that depicts the uh, warriors cutting off the arms of the Spanish soldiers that uh, that were caught. And so it actually shows that this is a tradition in ancient America as well. And the Aztecs, they proved their prowess in battle by, you know, showing that they had uh, vanquished their enemy by cutting off their arms and, again, allowed special privileges. So there was more to the story than just cutting off the arms because uh, they're fighting against Ammon. There was a reason, obviously, that he did it because it was to show that he was powerful, that he was a strong man, and that he had taken out all these enemies. And uh, it was done by depicting 
the actual body parts of those he'd slain. So was Ammon a bad guy? No, he wasn't a bad guy. Uh, he he was in charge of protecting the flocks, which, um, you know, we have to remember in the Old West, horse thieves were hanged. And the reason they were hanged here in the United States is because if you lost your horse, uh, that could mean life or death for you, being able to travel, being able to work, being able to uh, plow your fields sometimes and so forth. And in the ancient old world, when you had flocks that were obviously some sort of food source, to lose those could have cost the lives of the people, uh, either the king or the people that, that were being fed by it or so forth. So it, it, it uh, um, was a very important thing to watch over this. And, and, and just like shepherds watch over their sheep and Ammon watching over these flocks as well, he had to not only protect these animals, but he had to protect his life because these marauders would likely have killed him to get to those flocks. And so um, he fought back to save himself, to save the flocks, and then uh, brought those arms uh, to the king afterwards to show that uh, he had accomplished the task that he was entrusted with. So I find it interesting that Joseph would not have seen pictures of Spaniards or anybody else with uh, severed limbs. This was something that kind of came out of the blue. Yeah, again, you know, for, for for you know decades, people had read this and thought, you know, either gruesome mm -hmm. or fictional or whatever they would have thought of it. And, and then just within, you know, the last few decades, we find that, hey, this is actually an ancient custom, both in the, in the old world and the new world, and there's significance to it. It's not just to make the story an a, a interesting fictional tale to add a little bit of gourd to it, that there was a purpose. What did you personally think, Michael, when you kept hitting these coincidences while writing the book of Faith and Reason? The thing that I find fascinating is that they just keep piling up. Uh, we've heard sometimes of the term death by a thousand cuts. Uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what's going on here. If, if we just had one or two or maybe a handful of things, you'd say, well, these are just interesting coincidences. And we find coincidences all over the world. You, you can match up something from, you know, modern United States to ancient Japan or China or anything else. But these are more than coincidence. These show that there's some sort of connection between the Book of Mormon and the ancient worlds because there's a number of them and they fit in at the right place and the right time and they have the right meaning to them. And when we start accumulating more and more of these type of, uh, uh, I hate to use the word parallels, but in a sense that's what they are, it suggests that the Book of Mormon is really based on an authentic ancient text. And if that's the case, the only way really to explain how this text came forth is by the story that Joseph Smith himself told. That's the, that should be the title of your next book, Death by a Thousand Paper Cuts. <laughs> I'll co-author that with you, except I'm about half as smart as you are. So as you were writing this book, did you find a mind-blowing coincidence, or is it just one upon another upon another to where the evidences for the Book of Mormon outweighed the questions? Yeah, it's really kind of the accumulation of them. There are some that I find more fascinating than others, and, and some are stronger than others. And it's, it's always possible that in time, new light may be shed on some that need a little bit of tweaking. But 
you know, some of the things that proved very powerful to me are, are some of the names. We talked about these before, Nephi, you know, Sariah, Pehorin. These are names that are authentic, ancient names, uh, even the tie into uh, many times Egyptian, things that Joseph Smith wouldn't have known about. Um, the topic about thieves and robbers that we spoke of earlier, that Joe Smith doesn't get these mixed up, that they uh, are used correctly at the, at, for many different types of, uh, of bad guys. Um, one that really is extremely impressive to me is Nehom, where uh, the Lehites came down this trail and they, they buried Ishmael at the place that was called Nehom. And um, critics always ask for, well, I, I show me some sort of archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. There it is. Mm-hmm. Right there it is. Now, it's in the old world, but nevertheless, it fits exactly the right place, the right time, the right name, and the right connection to another place because they turned it Nahum and we find that the actual trail turned it Nahum and led to an area that was bountiful along the sea, which we find again in, in the ancient old world. So it's this convergence of evidence that makes it powerful. And uh, I just can't see what, uh, how these things can be brushed aside. I mean, obviously we, we can't know that the Book of Mormon is true without a spiritual witness, but I think that there's enough intellectual and secular evidences that at least would make somebody take these uh, books seriously and, and have some consideration for the possibility that it might be true. Do you feel that there will be more coincidences in the future? Yes. I, and I think not only that more evidence will come forth, but that we will gain a greater understanding of some of the things that are in the Book of Mormon so that we'll un- help to understand those in light of evidence that's maybe already out there. Um, sometimes, like I said, when we think of towers, when we think of tents, we put, uh, scholars call this eisegesis, where um, we put our own thoughts into the text. You know, when we hear of uh, um, Mary and Joseph going to an inn, you know, can't find room for the inn uh, when they're about to have the baby Jesus, you know, right <laughs> away we, th- we, we think of hotels and uh-huh. stuff. Um, but that's obviously not what was going on. And, and it's it's not unusual. In fact, it, it's part of how people think to plug in their own thoughts into a text when they don't understand it. And as scholarship increases, we're going to be able to find ways to understand these texts more in an ancient light. And I think that will help reveal evidences that are already floating around out there that we just hadn't uh, uh, connected before. Thank you, Michael Ash. Thank you, Julianne. Thanks for listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. I'm your host, Julianne DeLynn Hatton, inviting you to keep the faith. Michael Arash is the author of the book, Shaken Faith Syndrome, Strengthening One's Testimony in the Face of Criticism and Doubt, as well as the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Faith and Reason is produced by Tom Hatton with music courtesy of Arthur Hatton. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it in iTunes and by rating it and writing a review. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org or you may join the conversation at fairblog.org.